back when I was um, working on this in government, we went over to visit Northern Ireland many times. We spoke to loads and loads of businesses. Everyone from hauliers, you know, they were showing us the stacks of paper this thick, but for one lorry load of goods moving from GB to Northern Ireland, there's no there's no high risk goods there. It's, this is just ordinary you know, run of the mill consumer goods requiring you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of paperwork. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Ash and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, what's wrong with the Northern Ireland Protocol? The UK is reportedly on the cusp of a new arrangement with the EU on Northern Ireland. This is meant to minimize the post-Brexit trade disruptions, restore sovereignty and calm political tensions. But the worry is that the UK might succumb to EU pressures and not necessarily sign up to a strong enough deal, while others are worried about the impact potentially on peace in Northern Ireland. To discuss this topic, I'm very excited to be joined by Hugh Bennett. Hugh was a member of the UK's negotiating team on Britain's exit for the EU, which included the NI Protocol. He's a former special advisor to both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, uh, where he also worked on regulatory reform. Before joining the government, he was a journalist with Ghetto Forks and Brexit Central. So Hugh, I'm, I'm keen to get back to space here because I think the, the idea of the Northern Ireland Protocol is thrown around a lot in public debate, but, but very people know what it is, why it exists, you know, what is the purpose of it? Why do we have this Northern Ireland Protocol? Why are we talking about it? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I think you, you need to sort of rewind many years in the in the Brexit debate to sort of really go back to the origins of it. It feels like um, a long time ago now, but you, you almost have to rewind to 2017, at the end of 2017, when um, Theresa May agreed her sort of now somewhat infamous um, joint report, so-called joint report with the EU, which basically laid the foundations for what would become the become the backstop at the time. Um, and that, that essentially stated that, you know, in order to avoid needing any sort of uh, border infrastructure on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, there essentially had to be something which would keep the whole UK in regulatory and customs alignment with the EU. This so went on to become Theresa May's deal and the infamous backstop, which ultimately led to the, the downfall of her government as, as Parliament rejected it three times. So see, when Boris Johnson came in, uh, you know, that was obviously the most pressing political issue. And as I'm sure you'll remember casting your mind back to those uh, slightly tumultuous days in the second half of 2019 with prorogation of parliament, negotiations, breakthrough, a deal, Saturday sittings, um, you know, high, high parliamentary drama, and still the renegotiated deal, which obviously became the protocol, still couldn't get through that parliament um, with the amount of rebellions uh, and obviously that then led to the uh, 2019 general election which Boris Johnson won on the platform of getting Brexit done. Um, so that, that that's essentially when the protocol protocol then comes into force uh, at that point and um, yeah, I think it's obviously very different from the original backstop but it's not been without its own without its own problems and I think you know obviously when you look at the text of the protocol itself you know it's made clear that it's uh it's meant to be a living document it has the, the potential to evolve it, it um and in the context of Northern Ireland anything like that's always going to need to be interpreted in a way that is um it was actually sort of sympathetic to the to, to the specific uh issues issues on the ground there and the nature of trade 
um, between GB and Northern Ireland, obviously being very different from the nature of trade uh, with other with the EU sort of um, other external external partners. So um, so I think yeah, th there's obviously there's obviously been challenges ever since the protocol really fully came into force after we after mm. we um, left the transition period. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's obviously led to political deadlock in Northern Ireland. It's it's caused big problems for traders trying to move goods and from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. It's affected consumer consumer choice in Northern Ireland, and it's obviously got constitutional implications as well. And yeah, I'm keen to go into that, but it, I, I'm unpacking kind of uh, what you said there a second ago. So my best understanding is more or less what um, May was getting towards in order to reduce the risk of a, of a border between um, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland was to effectively put the, the entirety of, of the UK into the EU's regulatory orbit in perpetuity. Now, that was obviously opposed um, by a lot of Brexiteers on the basis that what's the point of leaving the EU, but more or less agreeing to follow single market rules um, indefinitely. That's the, in, in a sense, that's the, the, the worst of both worlds, which is you don't get necessarily the benefits of being a member of the EU uh, and getting to a say in the decision-making process of the EU, but you also um, lose out in the sense that uh, you can't diverge from the EU systems. You, you struggle to sign comprehensive trade deals with third countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the, the decision was under Boris, they said, well, okay, effectively, we're going to get um, GB out, we're going to get Great Britain out. But in order to minimize the risk of that, that border in Northern Ireland, which would you know, break the kind of underlying principles of the Good Friday Agreement, could potentially lead to more conflict um, and in, in Northern Ireland, what we're going to do is effectively sell out Northern Ireland. And maybe that's too simple a way to put it. And I, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but what, what effectively happened was is there was a, there was a trade-off here which said, okay, yes, we'll, we'll, we want GB to be fully independent, but we're willing to accept EU's, um, uh, at least to some extent, uh, rules being applied in Northern Ireland. And, and therefore, you know, the, the UK would no longer, in a sense, be fully sovereign over Northern Ireland. There, there'd be some elements, say medical regulation or product goods regulation, where in order to um, ensure that there was a frictionless border between Northern Ireland and an island that 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 uh, Northern Ireland would follow the EU's rules, but then that creates a border between uh, Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and and then that that's it creates the other side of it, which is it's much harder to export goods from uh, GB to NI, uh, and and that's the outcome of the the protocol in practice. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I probably wouldn't wouldn't go as far as saying. Uh... Saying it was it was selling out Northern Ireland, um, I think, but it, it does touch on I think perhaps what's been at the heart of some of the disputes between the UK and the EU, and that I think the EU almost sees the protocol as Northern Ireland still being in the EU single market, whereas the protocol makes itself very clear that that's not the case. So, you know, it's very clear that uh, you know Northern Ireland states as part of the United Kingdom under the <coughs> excuse me under the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is 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 affirmed. Um, and you know, Northern Ireland is a full part of the UK's internal market. So, so it's very clear that's not the case. And yeah, as you said, what, what it does entail is it does entail certain certain regulations, EU regulations, continuing to be in, in Northern Ireland. It does entail some form of uh, customs process between with goods moving between GB and Northern Ireland. But obviously, there's huge parts of the Northern Ireland economy which have nothing to do do with the EU under the protocol. Services are not included in the protocol, which obviously is a huge part of the UK economy in general. So I think you know, there's been there's that sort of been a tension in that the EU has almost sort of 
slightly oversimplified it and and sort of sees Northern Ireland as fully in its its own orbit uh, when when it's sort of very clear in the protocol itself that that's not the case. And, and there's been a sort of conceptual difficulty that's that's impeded pro progress in negotiations in the past. But but, you know, but I think obviously the hope is that you know, both sides can actually sit down and think about what's best for Northern Ireland uh, and come to a come to a sort of a solution that's much more sympathetic to the reality of the ground. Yeah, I'm packing in terms of what is the reality on the ground. I think there's a, there is a bit of controversy. You see some people who are, I suppose, supporters of the protocol, support maybe more sympathetic towards the EU, say, well, in fact, Northern Ireland has benefited from the protocol that has access to the GB market, has access to the EU market. Um, in fact, no, nothing to see here that all Ireland economy is actually going quite well uh, and the disruptions are being greatly exaggerated by um by brexiteers do, do you do you have any sympathy for those arguments or, or do you think there, there have been quite substantial and real impacts of uh in terms of trade with northern ireland and gb and, and that has had a substantial economic impact no i mean i think you know obviously there, there are different layers again to to unpack there and obviously different parts of uh of the economy are obviously going to deal differently with different requirements i think you know a pattern we often found was that you know, producers in certain sectors were actually you know, relatively okay with uh, a lot of requirements of the protocol because they wanted to be able to export to the EU and obviously in the UK we've taken a a more sort of pluralistic approach where we're saying that we're happy to accept it whether it's UK regulations or EU regulations or generally the EU don't don't sort of offer that flexibility in terms of, of the goods they recognize but but I but uh, yeah that's for a certain subset of the Northern Ireland economy but you know where the impact has been very felt is much more Consumer goods moving over to Northern Ireland, retail in Northern Ireland has been massively affected in terms of getting getting products across. Um, particularly anything that involves sort of animal plant health, garden centres have been massively impacted. For instance, um, uh, any anyone below the supermarkets who have a sort of special scheme to help them move goods, all sort of independent food shops have have had an, an absolute nightmare with paperwork. I mean, back when I was um, working on this in government, we went over to visit Northern Ireland many times. We spoke to loads and loads of businesses. Everyone from hauliers, you know, they were showing us sort of stacks of paper this thick for, for one lorry load of goods moving from GB to Northern Ireland. There's, there's no, there's no high risk goods there. It's, this is just sort of ordinary, you know, run of the mill consumer goods requiring, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of paperwork for each individual lorry to um, to, to complete. We've spoken to, you know, uh, you know, smaller food shops who suddenly they're faced with enormous paperwork because not only do they have to do customs paperwork, they also have to uh, get all their goods signed off by a vet. You know, even if even if it's sort of, um, I mean, th things like cheese crackers because they have a small amount of dairy in them. You need to get if they want to buy some cheese crackers from from Great Britain, they need to get them signed off by a vet uh, before they can move to Northern Ireland. And I think for a lot of these businesses. Yeah, if you're a big, big company, yeah, as we know with regulation more generally, you can often absorb these compliance costs. You have enough turnover to be able to hire the extra staff to deal with them. You know, if you're a small business with three or four people, you suddenly need to hire another person, grow your workforce 25% to deal with these new requirements. You know, it, it rapidly becomes completely uh, unviable as a business. And that, that's something we've seen, um, we've seen a lot in all the people we've spoken to. Yeah, and of course, it's not necessarily just about the economics here in any case, which is that there's a, the biggest issues um, uh, around the politics, the fact that there is no um, function in Northern Ireland assembly, uh, as as well as the increasing, um, I suppose, threats or, or actual cases of uh, violence when it comes to Northern Ireland um, politics as a result of this agreement. 
And I, I suppose one of the key principles of the, the Good Fight Agreement is, is cross-community support. And if there's one community that doesn't support uh, a certain major element of policy, it is uh, quite problematic from a um, Good Friday Agreement perspective. But on top of that, and, and you make this point, Hugh, in a, in a recent article you wrote for Telegraph, there's a question of sovereignty here, which is that even, even if there was no economic disruption, ultimately a problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, at least the way you put it, is the fact that the UK has, has given up its ability to make policy in major substantive um, areas when it comes to Northern Ireland and a, a country that is not sovereign over all its territory um, and a, is one that doesn't have um, the proper rights and abilities and freedoms. I think the thing is with Northern Ireland and the, you know, the complex set of relationships there and the history, I think, you know, we as, as the UK have always sort of accepted there will need to be some degree of hybridity in Northern Ireland. I mean, that, that's sort of very much woven into the fabric of the Good Friday Agreement itself. Um, you know, it is, it is there precisely to balance uh, a lot of competing interests. So, you know, in that sense, I think there's always an acceptance that, you know, Northern Ireland will need to be treated slightly differently from the rest of the UK. I don't, I don't think anyone is sort of arguing, you know, Northern Ireland is, you know, we're saying there's going to be no special arrangements for Northern Ireland whatsoever. Um, that much is clear. But I think, you know, our, our approach um, towards trying to solve a lot of these problems was actually, you know, trying to embrace more of a, more of a pluralistic model. So, you know, instead of saying, okay, only EU standard goods can be put on the market there, we can say, well, look, you know, we've seen from operating the protocol, there's, there's zero evidence of any leakage of, of, of non-compliant goods into the single market that aren't meant to be there. You know, where the goods are just destined for consumers in Northern Ireland, you know, why not allow it to be UK and EU standards at once? You know, the whole idea of dual regulation and I think, you know, contained within that, I think that, that also helps to address some of the problems around the democratic deficit, because you're saying, well, actually, it's up to individual businesses and consumers. You know, do they want to use EU standards? Do they want to use UK standards? And, yeah, sure, some of them might say, OK, we want to our main our main business is exporting to the EU, so we, would, we want to use EU standards. Others might say, well, actually, our main business is just selling things made in, made in England to consumers here in Northern Ireland. So it obviously makes sense for us to use UK standards. Um, and I think you know, by allowing that flexibility, I think you actually sort of, you know, you recognise that the, you know, the competing com competing interests at play, but I think you actually alleviate a lot of the pressures that people in Northern Ireland are all sort of subject exclusively to, to rules and laws that they don't, they don't have a say over. Yeah, I, I think in, in that case that there might be compromises that can be can be clearly found. I think there are other issues necessarily, maybe something like ECAJ jurisdiction. It's harder to envisage the, uh, a kind of compromise if the EU says, well, ultimately our law will always be interpreted by the, the European court system. Uh, and uh, the UK says, well, actually, no, that we, we don't want to have any kind of foreign court having direct jurisdiction in the UK. Uh, are there the kind of ways through that complexity or is that ultimately just a question of sovereignty? I mean, again, that's um, it's, it's a difficult one. And obviously the way the EU approach, the way they structure their legal order is um, you know, quite, quite, quite rigid in terms of you know, their views about only the court of justice can can interpret uh, can make any statement on the interpretation of EU law. Of course, you know, it is not it is not uncommon in legal systems. You know, in our own legal system, of course, our courts can pay heed to relevant judgments from other jurisdictions. They do it all the time. You look at major cases. Often, it's other places that have a similar common law system. You know, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian cases are cited, but. 
but you know where law is being used that has its origins somewhere else you know it's it's entirely normal for a judge in this country to say well actually we're you know it, it's relevant to look at a judgment from this court you know might, might even be the european court uh when it when it comes to interpreting a piece of law uh but you know as you say that's 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 very different from from a system where actually you know, there is a sort of direct link of um a link of uh, legal escalation that goes directly from the domestic courts into the into the European Court of Justice, and I think, you know, it, it, unless that can be addressed, uh, you know, that's always going to be a, a point of tension, a point of point of unhappiness. So I think there was a, a paper back back when you were in government about some more specific proposals for how to fix the Northern Ireland Agreement. Uh, obviously, I think that went along the lines of what you've been discussing it, which is to try and find kind of mutually agreeable solutions. And there was some discussion about red and green lanes. What were the kind of main features there in terms of what would be, I suppose, from the UK perspective, an, an ideal arrangement um, where, as you've said, considering Northern Ireland's unique state uh, and status whilst um, minimising any kind of disruptions on, on trade in all directions? Yeah, and I think, obviously, a red and green lane has been been the heart of the proposal and it sounds like that, that's what um, negotiators are working on at the moment so I'm obviously the key things with with a green lane is you know how green really is the green lane um what well, so like, yeah just so I get this right the idea behind the, the green lane is basically if you're relatively low risk you no checks going into Northern Ireland from GB uh and, and but then a red lane would be potentially high risk or non-registered or non-normal traders or something along those lines so I think the basic idea is that the red and green lanes divide in uh, according to the destination of the goods. So the goods are destined for Northern Ireland and they won't be processed or, or moved on to, to the EU uh, in some way. Then, then they're green lane if, if they know that they're destined for the EU, they're red lane. And then this, sort of, this, this is all then supported by using trusted trader schemes, using post-movement compliance uh, checks to make sure that the goods actually have ended up where where um, where companies say they have and obviously repeated vendors could be sort of struck out of the system and be forced to use the red lane um, if they were if they were deemed to be breaking the rules. But you know, as, it, as I said, you know, with the protocol or at least part of the protocol with the grace periods has been in operation for for over two years now, and there's been I don't think there's been any sort of measurable evidence of anything sort of ending up in um, ending up in the republic when it shouldn't be. So. So in that sense, you know, I think a system that it, that is based on trust, that is based on you know, traders doing the right thing, I think it does seem like a proportionate solution to to the sort of challenges that are being faced there. I think the problem then is, you know, yeah, as I said, how, how green is the green lane? And I think what we found is is it's not the it's not really the physical checks at the border that are the problems for small traders. You know, once your lorry's once your lorry's set off, you know, if it, if it has to spend sort of twenty minutes doing paperwork. Um, you know, in Lawn Port or something, that, that's not really that material to, uh, to to the viability of moving the goods. The much bigger problem is actually the paperwork involved with it, um, rather than rather than the physical checks. And I think, yeah, the, the real thing that, that that will sort of be a determinant of whether the the model that's agreed with the EU is a good one is, you know, just how green is it? Does it does it mean genuinely you know, the sort of light touch process that you know a van moving goods around um you know around england would have you know, you would expect to have a dispatch note you expect to have a full inventory of everything um in the lorry already obviously companies moving lots of goods around know what they're moving around people aren't just sort of throwing stuff in lorries haphazardly uh you know they couldn't no one can run a business like that so 
So is it something that looks more like that, you know, sort of shipping manifests and trees of, of lorries, or is it something that involves having to fill out a separate 2025 field form for every single every single uh, consignment within the lorry load? You know, if you've got a mixed load of you know 50 different consignments, that's suddenly 50 forms with 25 fields each. Uh, you can do the maths. It's a lot of that's suddenly a lot of bureaucracy that you're, that you're encountering. And I think that, that that's the sort of key determinant of whether it's really going to improve things or not. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in what you'll be looking at um, potentially in the, the, the next week or so when the government does announce some kind of um, new arrangement. What, what are the key facts here about whether or not something that you'd be you know, proud to support and say that the negotiators have, have done a good job um, or something that, you know, what are the red flags in terms of um, a potential deal? Well, I think the key things are, are to make sure that um, that actually all, all of the problem areas are addressed, not just the most visible ones. So obviously, the red and green lanes would solve the most visible problem that we've seen to date. And obviously, we were just talking about you know how green is the green lane is really a key key question around that. But there's also a lot of um, a lot of other problems around um, VAT taxation, um, what they would call state aid. Uh, which obviously the way they define it, it's not just it's not just sort of giving money to companies. It's also tax breaks, tax incentives, and um, as we know, sort of no taxation without representation has uh, been quite a um, quite an evocative rallying cry over the centuries. And obviously, Northern Ireland is currently in a situation where, where even if the UK government wants to, it isn't able to implement the same tax measures across the whole UK. So I think that obviously does go quite. Uh, quite, quite to the heart of what the fundamental activities of government are. So I think ensuring that there's a sort of proper resolution to those problems and not uh, not just a sort of light version of the EU system where the UK still needs to ask permission from the EU or conform with sort of uh, very specific rules in order to to grant tax breaks in Northern Ireland would be a, a big uh, big thing to look out for. Obviously, the court, the European court, uh, its relationship with any arrangements going forward will be a, a big question, and then. And then dual regulation. I think it's been an area that the EU's been sort of very unwilling to 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 look at sort of in any detail in, in the past. So I think you know in terms of in terms of easing the pressures on the consumers, in terms of giving you know giving it actually sort of helping the political situation in Northern Ireland, so people can say, look, we're not being subjected to rules that we have no control over. We actually have a choice between rules. Um, in lots of cases, I think you know, whether we can actually get any any meaningful agreement on that is going to be quite a big um, big thing to look out for as well. Um, so Hugh, while I've got you, I want to also uh, pick your brain, let's say, on um, some of the other work you're doing in government around uh, regulatory reform. Um, you were quite focused in terms of, uh, I believe, Brexit opportunities and, and trying to ensure the UK got the most out of um, a divergence from the EU. Um, I was wondering what you make of the government's efforts so far on things like the EU retain law bill um, and, and broader post-Brexit, even broader kind of red tape cutting agenda from the government. We hear quite substantially across you know, all three recent administrations about the, the importance and the priority that's been put on cutting EU red tape in particular um, and, and whether or not that's actually happening in practice, I think is still though an open question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very welcome that the um, the government has continued the retained EU law bill. So that's something we put a lot of work into um, towards the end of the Boris administration. And um, you know, I think it is an important step. Obviously, the the, the 2018 Withdrawal Act um, left 
our legal system in a bit of a limbo where we'd actually created a new special status for a lot of EU law, a lot of it because the EU law didn't sort of divide neatly into sort of primary and secondary in quite the same way. I think a lot of EU law got upgraded to the, having the status of primary legislation when it um, when it obviously never had that that level of scrutiny through Parliament in the first place. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, I think it is a very important important piece of legislation to actually you know, regularise the UK's the UK's legal system and the status of legislation within it. And you know, ensure that actually you've got this enormous body of laws and ensuring that the government actually has the tools necessary you know, to make proportionate changes to those rules without having to pass an act of parliament every time, which obviously given given the volume of laws we've inherited um, <clears throat> and the lack of scrutiny they had in the first place, I think is entirely um, entirely sensible. I think that the challenge comes obviously with the sheer volume of, of laws and the need to see um, rewind to last summer both candidates set ambitious timetables for that and i think obviously they're keen to get it done before the next general election which is understandable for for political reasons i think the challenge is obviously within within those eu laws you have everything ranging from you know some uh minor regulation about uh you know power <coughs> maximum power wastage for patio heaters right the way through to you know your whole system of intellectual property law or, um or, or things like that which obviously take a lot longer to reform and so and the challenge will be you know, to ensure that actually the government takes this opportunity to genuinely make those reforms to really change those regulations that aren't working. If all we do is sort of copy paste, we do a second copy paste exercise where you know, it's already been copy pasted by the first bill. But all we do now is we sort of convert it into law that looks more like UK law, but is still doing exactly the same things as it was doing before. I think it will be a real missed opportunity. I mean, that said, it's a huge task, I think um uh, for, for any government um you know I think some departments have more than others but you know, i think the, the resource that's needed and the political focus that's needed to ensure that you know that there's really this opportunity is maximized i think is is very high and i think with everything else going on it's it's um it's always going to be a challenge for government to focus enough on it yeah i think there's a bit of a risk here in the eu retain law bill that, that the government effectively says we're going to do this all by the end of 2023, which is you know, extremely ambitious, um, but in practice just chooses to eff effectively, rather than reforming the law, rather than repealing the law, it just says, oh, we'll just make it into UK law. So it becomes a copy and paste exercise rather than an actual reform exercise. And then a lot of the opposition to regulatory reform, either within government or externally, um, comes co coalesces together effectively against uh, the kind of reforms that might make Brexit worthy and, and a worthwhile endeavour um, and uh, and something that's um, actually going to deliver benefits to people. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's always a sort of, it's a, a square that the, uh, well, a circle the government has problem squaring. You know, it's, it's very easy to, <clears throat> to come up with lots of rhetoric about about uh, deregulation more generally or reducing regulatory burdens but uh, as soon as it comes to uh, any individual regulation you know there's always someone saying oh no not that one not that one oh, let, let's let's not change that so that one's really important i think you know in some ways that's always going to happen with the way whitehall is set up uh, departments uh, you know will just stick to their position because that's what they've always done um, and so it's much easier in government to block something than it is to make something happen um, so I think that that's always been a challenge, and I think unfortunately, you know, various policies which the government did look at and consulted on, you know, things like a regulatory gateway, that uh, one in one out, for instance, that used to be operated during the coalition era, and I think was actually very effective at keeping 
keeping the overall net burden of regulation um, down. I can't remember the exact figures, but I think if you look at the sort of whole six years or so when it was in effect, I think that the overall burden increase, uh, regulatory burden increased by the order of one or two billion. Um, and then in the the, few, the three years immediately after it was removed under the Theresa May years, I think the burden increased by some closer to sort of eight billion in just those three years. So I think it shows that actually once you take that break off Whitehall, um, you know, with all the best intentions from from ministers and prime ministers, um, you know, the bureaucratic machine will simply keep producing more regulation, I think, without without a sort of harder break on it. So it's disappointing that um, you know the, the previous government didn't didn't choose to um, to actually reintroduce anything like that, which might have actually helped to um, to make departments think a little bit more carefully about about the regulations that they're um, that they're passing and making sure that they're actually keeping an eye on the bigger picture. You know, what what does it's every regulation can be justified in and of itself, but once you add them all together, that adds up to a huge cumulative burden on businesses and um, and it, obviously, every Secretary of State wants to, you know, you want to do something, you want to say, I've passed this law, I've, I've taken action on this, but, but obviously the net effect of that over 30, 40 years is actually, you know, if you're, if you're running a business, you have so many more hurdles in your way. Um, and you know, it, ultimately, all it does is, is damage growth and competitiveness in the UK. Yeah, I think there's an interesting kind of, uh, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on this potential internal incentive problem here, which is, if, you, if you're a minister and you want to spend money, it's actually very difficult, relatively speaking. You've got to go to Treasury. You've got to convince them the program's worthwhile. There's a really extensive process for it. Also, if you want to regulate, there's there's no kind of um, check or balance on it. There's, as you've said, there's no um, two out, one in, or, or one out, one in kind of uh, incentive. There's no there's no budget for regulatory reform, which says, you know, you must reduce your regulation by 5% in some by some metric, there's no institutional mechanism in place. Um, and in fact, the opposite mechanism is often in place, which is anytime there's any kind of issue in public debate uh, in uh, any kind of political context, the response of ministers is, yes, we're going to fix that problem and we're going to fix it through regulation without necessarily a, analyzing the, the extent and the scope of the problem that they're talking about, nor analyzing the potential costs of the intervention in any kind of um, meaningful way. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right, and I think the way you know, the way politics is geared, the way that the system is geared, it's, it's the incentive is always going to be to 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 introduce more regulation rather than rather than remove it. So I think you know, I think the comparison with with spending within government is very interesting. Actually, you know, exactly as you say, the government has to think very carefully about spending. It needs, needs to really justify it. There's no equivalent system for for regulating i think you know something like that i know it's something that um jacob reese mogg was very interested in when he was business secretary um the idea of regulatory budgets um <clears throat> being used for departments uh, and i think ultimately you know the uk needs to think very seriously about introducing systems like that you know if we want to yeah you know, you've got to recognize that you know better regulation deregulation is always going to be a marathon not a sprint you know the low-hanging fruit has largely been been taken care of the problem is that the the, the, the cumulative burden um which will always increase unless you can sort of change the ins institutional incent incentives make system level changes that change the behavior of government change the behavior of policymakers over five ten fifteen year periods i think that's when you start to actually 
reverse reverse the trend towards ever increasing regulation and actually actually see see the benefits in terms of you know, increased economic growth and increased business activity. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for joining the IA podcast. It's been a, a fascinating discussion with Hugh Bennett, who's a, a former special advisor to, to Boris Johnson's trust, as well as a member of the, the UK's negotiating team on leaving the EU. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe in your chosen podcast provider, uh, as well as the IEA's YouTube. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA and interested in supporting the IEA, please do visit IEA.org.uk. Well, if you enjoyed that conversation, why not watch one of these other videos? And while you're here, remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That way, you'll never miss out on a single IEA broadcast.